Welcome to the Nightbird Radio Podcast. I'm Timothy Saylor, and I'm going to be your host this evening as we sound out the subconscious, navigate the nocturnal, and explore the farthest reaches of our experience. Coming at you from the back of an 86 Dodge Ram van on the rolling foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains in the Great Forest, deep in the heart of the Kali Yuga. This is Radio for the Hauntological Turn. This episode of the Nightbird Radio Podcast was brought to you by You're So Good and Anonymous. If you'd like to support the show and hear your name or a cryptic message in lieu of your name at the top of the episode, go to www.nightbirdpodcast.com and navigate to the Support the Show page. Thank you so much for your generous support. And welcome back, Nightbirds. It's great to have you back, and it's great to be back. This week I was joined by Drew Elliott. Drew is a social worker, psychotherapist, sound healer, and mystic. Drew shared his amazing story with me, and along the way we talked about the nature of addiction, consciousness expansion, mysticism, Gnosticism, and Eastern metaphysics, the medicine of recovery, plant spirits, Hellraiser, the zero-sum gameness of Western society, the occult roots of Christianity, Christ as a yogi, shamanism, opening portals with music, addiction as initiation, and so much more. Drew also blessed us by playing a selection of different flutes, so don't miss that portion at the end of the interview. But let's dispense with the introductions and get to the conversation. Drew Elliott, welcome to the Nightbird Radio Podcast. How are you doing? Thank you, Thank you for having me. I'm doing fantastic. It's uh, about 12.25 p.m. here in the Salt Lake City of Utah, so it's getting a little cold outside. With the global warming, it's not as bad as I thought it would be. I found I'm like 20 degrees here is not as bad as 40 degrees in the southeast because the humidity. So the dry cold is not as bad. Oh, yeah. It's a, it's a dry cold. We got a yeah. wet cold, man. I know, you know how that is. degrees in Georgia is painful. I remember but like 30 degrees here. It's not not too bad. It like um, it has a way of like penetrating the bones or something. Mm-hmm. Like I remember like yesterday. Yesterday. And, you know, I don't know. Actually, I was also fasted, so I don't know if that had something to do with it. But I just like felt like yesterday was one of those days I just couldn't get warm. Yeah. I don't know. And um, I had that more when I was smoking cigarettes. So when it happens, I'm like, oh, this is weird. This, like, feels wrong. But, of course, when you're, like, smoking cigarettes, you just have no, like, blood circulation. So it's just. <laughs> I wouldn't know. I'm actually allergic to cigarettes. Surprisingly, oh, nice. I can. I have a long history of smoking cocaine and heroin and marijuana, but if I inhale a cigarette, I'll choke and have an asthmatic reaction. So Interesting. one less addiction I had to worry about. Yeah, that was actually one of the hardest addictions to me because it's um, it doesn't like land me under a bridge. You know what I mean? Like everything else brought me to like that state of incomprehensible demoralization where I was like, I had just there's two choices, right? Like change the way I'm living or die live life along a spiritual basis or die and cigarettes are kind of a little more subtle than that right (laughs) they're much more subtle they're easily accessible and to some degree more socially acceptable um yeah you think of the consequences and also the external appearance of things you know some 
some addictions, what I call Hollywood, the kind of the horror stories, that stuff that gets you in the door. doesn't really keep you in the door, but it gets you there. Uh, some some substances, yeah, they have a much larger Hollywood factor, as I would call mm, it. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, and right. The not. It's funny that you say that, not necessarily keep you in the door, because, damn, if I... That does not speak to my experience to the T. <laughs> like, yeah. That's, you know, going to some crazy places and then it's like, man, I'm never doing this again a week later. Uh, I got a pipe in my hand, right? Like, <laughs> you know, each, uh, there's a mythos to addiction and then each substance can have its own mythology. If, you know, think about it, heroin addiction could make a really good script for a TV show or a movie, but, you know, nicotine addiction, I don't think anyone's made a film about that. <laughs> oh man it's actually funny i had a buddy that we were we were writing like a a nicotine based um post-apocalyptic it was weird man it was like some sort of a satire um it never quite got anywhere but it was fun to write <laughs> although i will say this and i my graduate research at Kennesaw state i often when there's a research paper due you don't get to choose your topic sometimes a professor actually chooses something they know you don't like or not comfortable with that was really common when i studied philosophy in undergrad you'd intentionally have to argue the side you didn't feel passionate about to really learn symbolic logic and yeah i enjoy that actually i was given a a paper about vaping (laughs) and I, i you know i just i just found you know dozen 20 30 articles about vaping and uh it's actually a really fucked up industry. <laughs> I bet because you're well, like, okay. I, for, in my opinion, what this comes from is the same idea. It's a materialist idea, right? That like, if I can just extract the right uh, molecule or extra, uh, isolate the correct part of this, what's basically a plant spirit then I can somehow solve it or make it work right within this framework. And that just leads to it actually becoming more and more weaponized. So like the idea of vaping, it's actually like in my experience, it was actually more addictive and more harmful to my body because I was like, who knows what I was inhaling in terms of like superheated metals and stuff like a coil. But then, you know, whatever, like propylene glycol and all that stuff, just like totally just, yeah. Whereas, you know, if you look at, say, a culture that has like a reverence for the tobacco plant and the tobacco spirit, Mm -hmm. the way they're going to use it, I just don't see it being as addictive, but it's just, it's been caught up in this sort of um, capitalist uh, extractionary, uh, colonizing way. And it, it's the same thing that happens to the land. In my opinion, um, people wonder like, well, like why are all the, why, why is there so much, so much anger, so much violence? And, uh, I think a lot of that really comes from, um, a mistreatment of the land. And then those kind of energies kind of welling up. Um, that, that, that's my little tangent. Um, any thoughts on that? <laughs> uh, a lot. Well, one thing I'll say about vaping, and this, this is not an anti-vaping campaign, uh, but it'd be funny if it did turn into one. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just, just in that, you know, the thing about academic research, I'll be honest, Tim, it's like people, well, research indicates, 
And then, you know, the true scholar would be like, well, cite your sources. And then, of course, no one ever cites their sources. Or maybe they do, and it doesn't really matter. You know, research, it's really easy to fabricate it. After working in a lab with, with a, a lab that was producing, you know, 20, 30 articles a year, and they were, they were like, you know, just find some sources that roughly prove the same point, put them in there. You know, no one's really going to fact check it. It's like, depending on who's funding the research, it can, so the the whole, the old phrase research shows, you know, when I hear that, take that with a, a huge grain of salt. Um, but I remember reading this one article about vaping and the juice. It's a gray market. It's not really regulated. So these manufacturers can literally put whatever they want in it. And they, they did some studies on a few of them and they found that some of the juices have between 70 to 80 compounds. And I think a researcher tried to dissect it and they said only seven or eight were even known to science. <laughs> wow. So that, that yeah. they're like the yeah, other putting some space alien shit in there. Well, um, that's like, and that, but that's like a microcosm of, of our society in general, I find. Cause like, if you read the ingredients on a lot of the things that like, yeah, we put in our bodies or what we put on our face or what we like slather on our skin. It's like, why does this have like heavy metals in it again? <laughs> like, can someone tell me? Yeah. <laughs> Did you see the film Crimes of the Future, the latest Cronenberg film? Oh man, no, I didn't, but I am aware of it. And if you're going to tell me about it, then I'm going to probably watch it tonight. Okay. Well, I, I'm trying not to spoil it, but uh, part of the film is, you know, the next stage in human evolution and I, this is just my interpretation of it. I'm not saying plenty of people could disagree with this, but that the next step of like the human digestive system was that our civilization become so fake that we're actually going to evolve to digest plastic. Oh God. That's kind like, of a metaphor. You know, the, the, the human of the future can eat plastic and digest it. Well, we do already. So that's really interesting. I'm definitely watching that. Um, I yeah, love Cronenberg. Yeah, of course. I'm obsessed yeah. with film. Yeah, it was a good one. It was a little gross, but obviously. Right. I mean, yeah. That's kind of yeah. what you're signing up for with him. Well, you mentioned earlier the, the spirit of the plant. You know, and I'll say this as a Westerner, um, especially in the liberal academia, there's this, you know, really harsh language around appropriating cultures. And I want to clarify that there's a difference between assimilating something and appropriating it. You know, assimilating it is kind of dissolving or absorbing it at the point where it loses all of its original flavor or spice. Whereas appropriation in Western society, everything we do is an appropriation. I mean, what is Western society? You know, Budweiser, hot dogs, and, you know, quick trip. <laughs> you know, everything, Western society is just an amalgam of appropriated things. So, and my, you know, I will talk about Eastern psychology, Eastern religion, and what I've been learning about shamanism. And this is just my infantile view of it. So anyone who's listening to this, you know, realize that just my perspective on it, what I have experienced in my phenomenological sphere, doesn't mean it's right or wrong. Um, so I just wanted to give that disclaimer there. Because I've had some people even, I grew up in a multicultural neighborhood um, in Gwinnett County outside of Atlanta where I was the only white, my brother and I were the only white kids. We grew up with an Indian family, a Pakistani family, Romanian family, Turkish family, and Chinese family. And I thought that was the way the world was. That was my universe, was a little rainbow of cultures. <laughs> so I grew up with different cultures. I grew up with Indians and Chinese people. That was my reality. You know? So I absorbed a lot of their culture into my own. Um, but you mentioned that the spirit of the plant Lately, I've been really learning more about uh, some Peruvian shamanism, you know, and then coming, going through treatment, 
and being exposed to the 12 step ideology, a lot of the shamanism is very threatening because it does involve things that I thought were drugs <laughs> that I thought were hallucinogens. Right. No. And uh, you think about clinical practice uh, and the way the paradigm is shifting and these, these compounds, these medicines are the future. They really are. It's coming. That's not my opinion. It's a fact. In the next five to 10 years, it'll be common practice in probably most clinical environments to use these plant compounds as purgatives and neural restimulators. Very interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I do want to hear a little bit about your background, uh, learning about Peruvian shamanism and just your background in general, if you want to get into some of that. You know, where have you always been interested in this sort of thing or did it come along like what's your story there i like to hear about where people came came from you know um one of the questions i like to ask is what were you afraid of as a kid that's a good question as a kid i grew up in a very neurotic family a loving family but a, a huge genetic component of mental illness of a I think there was some bipolar, maybe some schizoaffective, a lot of substance use disorders. I had multiple family members who died by suicide, uh, died via alcohol. Um, so I was put into the world, at least in this carnation, this body with a huge genetic predisposition for some of those things. And I remember being a child, six to seven years old, and a lot of my first memories are of fear. But I don't know what of. I remember being in bed and my heart would be pounding and I couldn't sleep because I thought they were coming to get me. And I thought that, you know, I'd seen the news about wars or see some depiction of a nuclear holocaust. And I I thought, you know, the world is going to end and they're going to come to get me and they're going to kill me. And I just that pervasive fear was always in the back of my mind, you know, as a six or seven year old kid. And I grew up in a middle class family. All the base needs were met. I really had no logical reason to be afraid, and yet I was of something that wasn't really tangible or palpable. So <laughs> that was yeah. the majority of my youth. Okay, so what was the? This is just a question that comes to mind listening to you. So, what did your first interaction with substances or drugs? What effect did it have on that fear? Hmm. Great question. Um, so I have the genetic when I just, just on the psychological plane, and there's more planes than that. You know, when we get into mysticism later on the psychological plane and the physical plane, I had a huge disposition for it. Um, I was also sexually abused as a kid. You know, I don't need to get into details, but the thing about sexual abuse or emotional abuse, even physical abuse is they send a message. There can be an implicit, but also an explicit message that the child subconsciously integrates into their ego formation and the child's not aware of it and it becomes a part of your identity. In mine, it was different. It wasn't that I believed I was disgusting or that it was my fault. It was more psychological nature. But the idea that I absorbed was that um, physical pleasure is the highest pursuit and that the body is just a mound of flesh and and feel good at all costs. My body is a vessel for pleasure and so is yours. And to obtain that pleasure, even at the cost of someone else's well-being, that was the message that by the time I was seven or eight, I'd completely formed into my child ego. 
so you mix a, a disposition of anxiety, neurotic fear, and then being locked in the flesh. And then at the age of 15, uh, my addiction actually started with a broken arm. I broke my left arm during sports and I wasn't very athletic. Uh, they gave me a shot of morphine and then a script of Percocet. And this was back in the early 2000s and there was no awareness. There was no opioid crisis. The doctors just handed out the candy. They weren't policed. My parents didn't. No one monitored the script. They just let me keep the bottle. Um, that same year, I also smoked cannabis for the first time and drank for the first time. And for me, substances were a deep and complete spiritual experience. You know, everything Carl Jung describes in the psychic change, I experienced that when I used substances. And I remember the first time I got stoned. See, my, my allergy, my abnormal reaction was not the phenomenon of craving as some of the addiction litter describes. It was just the profound impact it had on me. I remember rocking back and forth, laughing and saying, I found God. Mm. And my friends, they were enjoying themselves, but they said, Drew, you're having a little bit too much fun. You need to calm down. I was like, no, you don't understand. I found God. And my friends just kind of like, all right, whatever. You know, they didn't have that effect. Right. You know, they, they were chilling. They were stoned, but they weren't transported to a different dimension like I was. You know? Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Um, yeah, I always like to hear that because that was my... That was my reaction too. I remember um, not so much. It's interesting, right? Because I look back on it and I can say, oh, yeah, I also felt that I had found God to some extent because I, like, when I took my first start of cocaine, I was like, oh, shit, this is like the feeling I was chasing in church. This is like that on fire for God feeling, but it comes in this powder I can just ingest. Um, Alcohol in a in a much more subtle way for me just made me feel like I was part of the world, uh, you know. Um, but yeah, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, addiction in, in my clinical experience and research, addiction is of any of the disorders I've worked with. It's definitely the most mysterious and most complex because you're never just dealing with addiction. There's usually some comorbidity you know, some other occurring illnesses, a lot of environmental factors, a lot of personality traits, personality subtypes. And a lot of this defined by the DSM literature, which is interesting because when I first got into academia and social work, you know, I was, I was like, oh, the DSM is some bullshit. It's just this, this cabal of white men created it to control the population. And I thought diagnostics were bullshit. After spending a few years in the field, the, the, what they were, they were describing patterns of behavior and they are damn accurate. Uh, often with my clients and patients, sometimes I can predict their behavior to a scary degree. You know, psychopathology, at least in the Western culture, because it was, you know, mostly defined by Westerners studied in a Western population. It was actually they're pretty accurate. Um, it's pretty accurate. You know, with me, I, I'm not sure. I was listening to a medical doctor give a lecture about the, the medical model of addiction medicine. Said that some some people who are predisposed to addiction, they're uh, and I'm not a neuroscientist. This is probably a crappy interpretation, but we have these kind of neural receptors that hook to the endorphins or whatever drugs release. So, like a normal receptor would kind of be like two prong. You know, the thing would click to it and there'd be a reaction. Said first the addict, the receptor is larger. So when the drug 
molecule or whatever releases hits, there's a much larger dopaminergic reaction in the brain. So some people have these brains, their receptors for cannabinoids or opioids or whatever are intrinsically larger. And there's a larger output of chemical release in the brain. That might explain some of it because like, I had a much more profound impact than the people I was with. And I knew in my heart I had to have it again. There was no question. Yeah, I'd say it probably explains some of it, but there's just nothing to me in that. So, like, I can't explain all of it. This is just my experience with it, right? Um, but I do think there's like just like an as above, so below kind of thing going on there where like the it's it's happening on many levels, and that's like the physical psychological level like it kind of like you mentioned the, the psychological level and then it's happening on now combine all of that because i don't think any of it's really separate and then, yeah. <laughs> and then that's what you have it's this um a sticky wicked as they say um mm-hmm. because in my in my experience there was um the only solution that i was able to attain was spiritual mm-hmm. In nature, um, now I, I, you know, I don't know that everyone is the same. I can't speak for anyone else's experience, but my own, right? Um, what, what? Okay, so this will bring us to um, to a question that I wanted to ask you. You know, when we met briefly, um, I had heard you talking to someone else, and you had said that um, that a flute had saved your life. Mm-hmm. So maybe that can get us closer to what I'm sort of aiming at here. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. I, my father is a professional musician. So is my grandfather and I, and what I call my old life, you know, back I was training to be a musician. I was actually in music school studying jazz guitar performance. And I, I had a, a wrist injury in 2007. I damaged a tendon that kind of prevented me from really playing guitar professionally. And that really made my addiction worse. Cause I just, music was the only in my perspective, it was the only thing I was good at. It was the only thing that made me valuable. And to have that taken away overnight, it just seemed like what kind of world, who, who would design such a world? And I made a vow you know, to destroy myself with drugs and alcohol. Um, a lot happened between there. You know, I got clean in 2017. And then in 2020, during the COVID summer, I slowly, I was like, I'm going to try to start playing guitar again, you know, just here and there, just as a hobby. And I derived a lot of joy from it. And I was had been into meditation for a few years and I was listening to some native flute meditation. That sounds cool. So kind of as a joke, my partner at the time I asked her, I was like, Hey, will you buy me a native American style flute for Christmas? She said, yeah. And I didn't know if she'd really do it or not. And then we had Christmas, there was a little thing, you know, under the tree and I opened it and it was a flute and I can't, when I held it in my hands, like something happened. And she told me, she said, I've never seen anyone so excited about anything ever. And actually, like, my family was there, and she they were kind of weirded out by it. She's like, didn't know what to think. And I was just like, oh, my God. I stayed up all night playing it, and I haven't put it down since. You know, now I have a collection. I have thousands of dollars worth of flutes. Um, the flute is the oldest instrument in the world. I think some of the oldest flutes, like 50 thousand years old, you know, Neanderthals, even before Homo sapiens were walking the earth, they were making flutes out of bone, you know, cow bone and, and vulture bone. I mean, I guess the oldest instrument is the voice, the vocal cords. I remember reading some books about ethnomusicology and said that melody actually preceded rhythm, that the voice and melody precedes rhythm. 
which is interesting. You think it would have been a drum or something percussive, but the, the mm. evidence shows that no, it was actually melody. And then the flute, uh, a way to create melody. Um, so there's something primal about it. All ancient cultures have some type of flute. And I can't explain the sensation I had when I playing it. It was, I don't know, some strange karmic past life. Just I've been here before. S- sensation like that, if you can understand it. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, sometimes that's the only way I find I can understand things. <laughs> you know, um, like when you're describing that flute going into your hand, it was like your hand was... It, um, huh, it reminds me of there's a roomy... Uh, and I'm going to butcher it because I don't remember the exact quote of the poem and I don't, you know, it's a translation anyway. So this is like a translation of a translation of a translation. But he describes the music of the reed flute as being like the sorrowful sound of the reed desiring to be back on the bank. Yeah. yeah. There's something in that that's um, right. Like it's transcendent in a way that it just touches like straight to your to your core. I find, and I'm, you know, I, and I just listening to um, some of the stuff that you played and, you know, my experience listening to things like that. Um, it's, it's like a transportive thing. Is that a word? Did I make that word up? Transportive. Yeah. I think <laughs> it works. Yeah. It's transformative and transportive. It takes, yeah. it takes you elsewhere. Not to mention the soothing, you know, vibration, Know, and, then, and then taking the flute into the, my clinical practice and developing what I call sound therapy, um, mix of uh, cognitive behavioral psychotherapy, a sound bath, you know, grounding mindfulness, and then also adding a psychedelic aspect to it. You know, telling people what I'm trying to teach my patients now is it's okay to want to alter your consciousness. Don't ever let anyone. If you feel like you're a junkie for wanting to alter your consciousness or feel like you're not in sobriety because you want to alter your consciousness, it is an intrinsic impulse to alter it. Even children spinning around in circles and rolling down hills, yeah. holding their breath, altering their consciousness. I think and it's part that, of like how we evolved. Personally, I ascribe to some of that stuff. Go ahead, though. Continue. Um, and, and there's ways to do that without mind-altering substances, without the consequences that... I think all all drugs are medicines to some degree, and just some of those medicines have really bad side effects. <laughs> you know, right. heroin's a great medicine for certain things. It's just when used in a certain way, it has some really nasty side effects. Side effects I experienced, and then the yeah. side effects were outweighing the the pros of the medicine. Right. Yeah. Um, in that way, sometimes I wonder about, and this is just my musing, but. Like I've come to this place in my recovery where I'm able to look at my relationship with drugs and alcohol and see it as like what it is for me, which is a teacher. It's really my, like I used to kind of have self-pity, like why am I this way and other people aren't? But I came to a place of, well, I'm grateful for this because it's been my teacher. Like it is the greatest teacher that I've actually had in a, in a way. Right. And maybe that's that perspective shift, but, um, what made me mention that I can't. Oh yeah. Right. So the side effects, side effects of the medicine. Yeah. So like, I like 
there was something in me that had to um go a hundred percent to the point where I was completely dissatisfied. And now it's almost become like it has become a blessing because it's put me on a path that has aided my life in such profound ways beyond just the the changing of the relation like the changing of my relationship to those things. I don't know. It it's allowed me to like live a life Whereas before, you know, like I needed those things to feel normal or to like not jump out of my own skin. Now, um, the, the tools, techniques, skills, I don't know what, what is the best word for them. Um, but the things that I've been put in contact with through this journey, um, they offer me those same effects, but it's like, tenfold and with none of the um the negatives i think is what i'm trying to say yeah agreed agreed in a different way yeah what i always say i whether i'm in the field or at some type of support group i never really glorify or romanticize drug use i call it that that drug shit talk i never do that i think when people are romanticizing it the way i interpret that is to give gratitude and homage to the chemical, you know, I thank uh, opioids for saving me because when I was 15 years old, a traumatized child with severe anxiety issues, um, you know, I was leading, I was starting to have daily suicidal, obsessive and uh, intrusive suicidal ideation. You know, I I remember getting off seventh grade, getting off the school bus and look at the ground and from walking to school bus in my house thinking, I have to die. I have to die. I have to die. I have to die. You know, thinking there is no way. I can tolerate the pressure of existence. It just didn't make sense to me. And then there was that bullshit, you know, you could be some starving kid in Africa, you know, that, and it's like, my reality is my reality, my sphere, what I perceive, you know, the inner pain cannot be denied. Um, and, and I had all that tenfold and the substances gave me a relief from that. And it, what a gift, you know, what a gift. I'm so thankful for them for really saving me. Uh, and then eventually beating me into a state of submission and destroying me, um, you know, taking my, my will and my life and just, I was completely dysfunctional. I mean, I became an invalid. I was transient. Um, I, I really, dro- I lived off the grid. I dropped, I dropped out of society. I dropped out of life for about three or four years before I went to treatment in 2017. So you know, go, going from just a traumatized kid to kind of social addict to, you know, musician and then full-time addict and then living off the grid and being one of those people you only heard about in movies or saw depicted in, in books, you know, and then, and then rejoining society is a very strange feeling. I'm not sure I'll ever get fully used to it. Um, I still just walk around the city and I'm just like, feel like I'm wearing a spacesuit sometimes. <laughs> I relate to that. Yeah, I think that that's um, one of the ways that I came back around to like um, some of the ideas from Christianity that I had become really estranged from just from having just, you know, everyone gets burned by the church most like in some way or not everyone, but most people I talk to at least. Um, And so I had a lot of resentment against that and I kind of went the other way and just 
No, none of that, right? But one of the ways that I came back into relation with some of those ideas was through uh, like a Gnostic Christian lens. And I really like there's something about um, the idea of not being at home in this world that really like resonated with me. I don't even know if it really resonates the same with me now as it did then. I see it more of like a, it was like a door that it let me walk back through. Now I think that there's nothing that separates me from the world that I am, am one and the same as the world, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but there was a time when it was a really, uh, and this might speak to, you know, the drugs and their, and their sort of medicine that they offer. And then, and then, you know, kind of take away in some way. Um, that was um, that was medicine for me then. Um, and, but I still feel it. I do still feel that. But I think part of that is that just um, I don't know. I don't know that I vibe a lot of with our society, to be honest. And I think that's okay. You know what I mean? Like, I think that um, yeah. I'm going on a tangent, but I think that um, there is sort of a part of addiction that, like, part of it is that we just don't quite fit somehow. Not to make us special or different, but there is something there. Because it's always been, like, a deep thing for me that, like, there's just something that doesn't click. Yeah, I had that sensation way before, even as a child, like I said, being in bed, ridden with anxiety, really just not even be able to breathe, felt like my head is being shoved underwater. And and I, I think of, you know, the uh, Eastern ideas of reincarnation, where the spirit comes from, and I'm not saying I, I'm not sure what I believe, how far, how metaphysical or literal I take that, but I think in one sense, you know, if the soul does come to inhabit the body, this incarnation, uh, I always got the sense that my soul didn't really want to come here. You know, it didn't, it had to, for some reason it had to, it had to know itself experientially to some degree, but it didn't in, in a lot of meditation, I had the sensation where my higher self is like, look, I'm sorry. Like I didn't really want to come here, but we had to, and it kind of, it was apologetic towards me. And I was like, I kind of get it. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I think that especially in this time, um, like I don't, you know, as as much as um, we tend to see our society as like some sort of a pinnacle or um, or like some ideal of progress, I actually really don't think that's the case. And I think that we're actually farther out of relation, um, maybe than we've ever been. Um the way we treat the earth, the way that we treat the life of this planet, the way we treat ourselves, the way we treat our neighbors, all to me that, and you know, shit, I don't, I think that's just something that has to happen. I think like there's part of this that is a lesson. Like we, like this is a school or at least I I choose to see it that way because there is something about how I choose to see the world that makes it, a reality for me. Yes. <laughs> I used to see it as a hell <laughs> and it became that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, 
you know, what I call Eastern psychology with my patients and clients. I, I don't, I'm not going to say Buddhism or Hinduism. I'm going to say Eastern psychology. You know, they, the Easterners developed a cognitive theory of mind thousands of years ago, and all they really did was sit underneath a tree and observe their thoughts. And a lot of the latest neuroscientific research is showing that some of it's pretty accurate. The way emotions come from kind of a subconscious part of the brain, the way the prefrontal parts of the brain interpret the emotions through sensations and through thoughts and those thoughts being filtered through this egoic sense that we subconsciously learned in childhood. And then that manifesting as behavior, external manifestation and that somewhere along that sequence of internal happenings, there's so much gets skewed. And I think uh, a lot of the Easterners, they, you know, should say you don't see the world as it is. You see the world as you are. So everything I see is filtered through, my narrative and my lens that I didn't even develop consciously. And I developed it in childhood because I had a sensation of fear, a sensation of not belonging, a sensation of kind of otherness. And I interpreted that through my ego as something's wrong with me and something's wrong with the world. Developed the core beliefs that the world's a bad place, it's a scary place, and people are not to be trusted. And also in Western society, we really, they really preach the zero sum game. You know, it's that benefit can only be attained at the detriment of someone else. There's a limited amount of stuff out there and I got to take mine so you don't take it from me. Yeah. Which is a really, it's really not that accurate as you think it is. And it's a sick way to look at the world. I think that that actually, that that idea is uh, an alien to our world. I think that's actually a... um, Maybe a disease is a is a better word to put, but it's something that is not actually. Um, there's not a lot that I would say isn't natural, but that idea actually doesn't seem natural. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and then that idea actually that zero sum gameness that you're talking about, I think, is also what lends itself to like empire building. Uh, yeah. Obviously, right? Like. And yeah, when I look at history with that lens, it just seems like um, it just seems like that's in in total diametric opposition to the life of this world. Nightbirds, I hope you've been enjoying the conversation so far, and there's more to come. But first, I have to ask that you support the show. As I'm sure you've noticed, there are no commercials on this show. There are no paywalls. You get everything up front. For there to be free dialogue here, I think it must remain uncaged by the interests of advertisers. But Nightbird Radio does cost time and money to make, and your support means I can spend less time delivering pizza and more time doing this. That's a win-win. So that's why Nightbird Radio is a value-for-value podcast. I hope you've found value in this show, but I can't and won't dictate just how much. Only you can decide that. But what I can do is invite you to take that value, turn it into a number, and head to www.nightbirdpodcast.com and hit the donate button located on the front page to offer your support. We're also listed on podcastindex.org, which means you are able to send Bitcoin via the Lightning Network using your favorite podcasting 2.0 apps, which can be found at newpodcastapps.com. And finally, I also accept dry goods, 
Email me at tim at nightbirdpodcast.com for more information. Sponsors will get a special mention on the show. Thank you for your generous support. Now let's get back to the conversation. I was listening to, a, I think, a Gabor Mate a lecture a few days ago. It's a pretty interesting psychiatrist or whatever he is. And he said, if you really want to observe a creature, you observe it in its natural habitat. So if you want to observe uh, whatever, a bear, you wouldn't do it at the zoo. You'd go to the wilderness and set up a, you know, climb a tree and have a binoculars and observe it in its natural habitat. He said, that's somewhat true for humans. He's like, if you really want to see organic human behavior, go to Aboriginal tribe or something like that and see how all the children are raised by the community. Um, that everything is collective, that a lot of things are shared. And, you know, that, that might be dependent on different cultures, but I think in a lot of them, it appears, uh, I'm not an expert in this, but a lot of them did have this kind of a collectivist ideal, a tribe mentality where everyone was kind of family. And then the disconnection in our society where, I mean, how often do you even know who your neighbors are? <laughs> Right. You know, and even if, if I knocked on a neighbor's door, they would probably come to the door suspiciously. Like, what the fuck do you want? You know? Yeah. I mean, it, it, this is just an example. I, um, I met some of my neighbors maybe a year ago, and I exchanged numbers with a few of them. And uh, one of them moved, and then I moved apartment. I've been getting their mail, a lot of it. And I just sent a message. I had one of their numbers. I said, hey, this is Drew from next door. You know, I think I'm getting your mail. And they were like, how did you get my number? Who are you? Like, this isn't, it's like immediate, immediate, like, get away from me. I was trying to do a nice thing. I was like, no, you gave yeah. me your number. We've messaged before. I have your mail. It looks like there's some bills. I would like to help you. And the immediate response was almost perceiving me as predatory, which is shocking. And I was just like, damn. <laughs> that's you know? just, yeah, that's sad. That's just one tiny example. That's just something that happened the other day that I thought, you can see the, the, the paranoia in the atmosphere of our culture. Yeah. It's just seething paranoia everywhere that everyone is trying to fuck me. <laughs> right. And I have to stop them, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's something else, <laughs> but, uh, let's get back on those flutes. Yeah. I want to hear more about the flutes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and maybe we'll hear some flutes. Oh, definitely. I got I got a few within grabbing distance. I had them all prepared and tuned and ready. So, so does the flute conversation, does that segue nicely into like the shamanism and mysticism? Or how do you want to go about that? Like, Yeah. I think even what we were saying about the paranoid aspects of our culture. You know, I, I was in treatment in 2017. And I was just in Georgia. And it was run by a very conservative southern man who became a dear mentor of mine, complicated individual. We had a complicated relationship, but they had a church requirement and it was, you know, kind of Baptist brimstone church. And I, I was so humbled and humiliated by my addiction. I didn't complain. I said, just tell me what to do. I'll just do whatever, you know, I said, just I'll, I'll do it. And then a few months into it, I politely asked, said, Hey, can I please have permission to go elsewhere on Sunday mornings? And I said, you know, this isn't my path, you know, you know, this isn't my path. They're like, okay. And he said a really important thing. He said, you can go elsewhere, but I want you to commit to something. I don't want you doing this cocktail bullshit of just little Westerners love that. We do a little bit of this, a little bit of that, but we never, we're never all into anything. Rarely do you meet a Western who's all into one path. 
uh, because we live in a fast food culture. We live in a McDonald's culture where we want all the results, but we don't want to do any of the work. I went to a few places and ended up at the the Self-Realization Fellowship. They had a center in Atlanta, which is Kriya Yoga. Um, As delineated by Paramahansa Yogananda, he came to America in the 20s. And he's one of the first Indian people to start a temple, a center here to introduce yogic concepts to Westerners, intentionally to bring the yogic and Vedic sciences to Westerners and to allow a yogic style of life to flourish in Western society. And I studied there intensively for years, really up until COVID, it shut down. I had a falling out with a mentor I had there. and um, I was about to take vows to, to become initiated and I kind of got cold feet and I ended up not doing it. And I... But I, that really interest, introduced me to Eastern concepts, Eastern psychology. And I took meditation lessons there. Um, they had books and magazines and pamphlets. And I went on retreats. And they taught me, you know, welcome to yourself. And I remember one of the monks there, he said, the soul is already in full communion with God. The soul is pure light. There's nothing taintable in your soul. But when the soul identifies with the body, it becomes ego. He says, you're not learning anything. All you're doing is improving what you already know, improving your knowingness that the soul is light. Mm -hmm. So uh, mysticism and Eastern psychology is a removal process, an excision and extrication of these attachments and these bullshit models like that. I have to be paranoid, the zero sum game that I'm not safe. You know, what mysticism taught me is that as long as I'm completely identified with my emotions, my thoughts, or my physical body, I will never know peace in this lifetime. It's impossible. Because then all, all I know is pleasure, suffering, and then pleasure as the relief of suffering. There's no spiritual pleasure. It's just uh, like a massage. A massage feels good. But is that happiness? Is that peace? I think that mysticism taught me that there is another realm. Uh, there's a, a realm beyond the naked eye, a realm, a temple within, uh, a place I can go to retreat and solace and kindness um, and regeneration for myself. And it's, but it's not, I think even my addiction, I really quote the movie Hellraiser a lot in the book Hellraiser by Clive Barker. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's good. I think Frank, you know, he, he summons the Cenobites with Lamarck's box. They said, What are you seeking? He says, Pleasure. Can you give me that? And Penhead says, yes, but not as you understand it. That pain and pleasure are indivisible. And I, you know, what I, I wanted happiness and I thought pleasure was synonymous happiness, but also I wanted freedom and peace, you know, in a spiritual experience. But the universe said, not as you understand it. You know, mm. not as you understand it. That makes sense. That makes good sense. Yeah. Uh, I like that idea of, um, that you mentioned of just refining what you already know. Um, there is a, also a, a concept of this in Gnosticism, which is, it's a, like a little more Eastern flavored of Christianity, right? It was, um, since it kind of got um, suppressed and, and lost, really, it never um, evolved and so when we discovered the writings, it was like this kind of pristine vision of what, like, uh, it, it came about in Alexandria, 
And so it was this this melting point of like Eastern thought, Jewish thought, and Greek thought that kind of like melded in together. And it's this beautiful Christianity. And um, there's a concept in it called anamnesis, which is the loss of amnesia. It's not that I'm learning anything. It's that I'm remembering. Yeah, it's good stuff. Amazing. I don't know much about it, but I know, you know, contemporary Christianity is so different. And even um, there's a film called A Field in England by, um, I think, a, a Welsh or Scottish director. Camera was name is and if you haven't seen it, see it. It's about kind of historical fiction about alchemy and, and Christian alchemy and Christian occultism. I think in the 1500s and how Christian occultism was a very elite thing, and that back then Christianity was highly occult. I mean, yeah, demons and witchcraft and psilocybin plants and, and oh yeah, and it was you know it was not as we understand it now. This idea that there was monks you know eating bread in the temple. No, they were up to some interesting some very yeah. bizarre stuff <laughs> yeah yeah a lot of occult stuff you know um that's my kind but, of christianity that's the kind of <laughs> <laughs> See, the thing i could never i could never appreciate western religion actually until i went to the self-realization fellowship because yogananda actually in the hindu in a lot of hindu traditions they revere christ as a reincarnated maybe a you know reincarnation of hanuman or one of the great servants and that's just Cool. I'm not saying that's exactly what they believe, but I've just, through some of them, that's what I've been told. And a lot of Hindu centers, they'll have a picture of Christ on the wall. And when I when I read the Gospels through an Eastern interpretation, I'm like, oh, that's actually some dope. Dude, Christ was a yogi. And they yeah. said, what do you think he did for the 33 years he was accounted for? They said he was in India. And then itself, they said they have proof. They, they, they're like, there's proof that he was in India studying yogic sciences and then took it back to the, to the West. Yeah, it's like that's a really cool concept. I mean, I don't, I don't know it's true, but that right. I was able to really appreciate some of the principles of Christ when I viewed it through the Eastern lens. Cool. I, I like to hear that because, yeah, it's it. There's something to be said for being able to like pull myself out of and give give something a look from outside or maybe from just a different perspective. Um that really is able to enrich and, and, and maybe it is just that different perspective or um, a place of neutrality, maybe. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so we digress. Um, you were talking about mysticism. Um, looking yes, within. Uh, you know, my, my favorite book on the subject is awareness by Anthony DeMello. Who's a I love Jesuit. It. It's a great book. You know, Indian Jesuit, behavioral psychologist. I used to like Buddhism, Hinduism, and Jesuit. That's my favorite subgenre. It's like Christian, Christianity, Buddhism kind of melded and had a kid. You know, I love some of the, the spiritual exercises of Ignatius. I mean, that's some deep, really deep stuff. And reading that book, you know, about spirituality as a practical science and as a cure to a lot of the ailments of Western society, you know, and that. I just think of the, the, this layer of reality above the eyes and above the senses and how it's easily attainable when you, when you even just using simple mindfulness practices. I think in Yogananda, a lot of his chants, you know, there's one called the Temple of Silence. He just talks about the Temple of Silence within, the Temple of Peace, you know, being coaxed this altar of bliss within. And it's interesting because I never, you know, mysticism, what it taught me was that 
you have to look within and not in some, you know, it's, you can say all this shit. It sounds cute. It's like, no, really like you're never going to find these external things. You know, the Western idea, if I just arrange the show in the perfect way, all will be utopia. And then you see a lot of this in the addiction literature and particularly a lot of Bill Wilson's writings, you know, this idea about the, the Westerner wanting to be the playwright, the director and the actor, the script writer, the producer. And if I just create this perfect narrative, all some, it'll just all work out in the end and that we just believe it. And it's like, no, that's not how it works. Like, you know, when he said I was inwardly reorganized that my roots grasp a new soil, you know, it's an inside job. And I was never, that never clicked to me until I read Eastern literature and things about mysticism, but also the comedy of it, that from a certain perspective, all these sufferings and complexities are actually kind of comedic. It's totally, (laughs) it's like, I'm running around like a madman searching for this thing. That's going to satisfy me. And I had it all along. It's been there all along. I never didn't have it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I, I left the SRF during COVID and I just, something stopped me in my heart. I just couldn't do it. And I, I didn't really understand why at that point. It's also, it's a very, it's a very demanding path, you know, to really, to take the vows. I mean, it's, and they said, Drew, this is an all in thing. You know, this is all in. You can't, these are sacred. In order to go to the next step in lessons, these are sacred Hindu texts. You cannot obtain them unless you're earnest. And in my heart, I just couldn't, I said, I I can't do it. I couldn't do it. Something was blocking me. And spiritually, I was lost for a few years. It really hurt some some bottoms I had in sobriety. Um, Still doing some of the practices, but not really feeling in my heart. And I had a head injury and this will go into the flutes and stuff like that. I had a head injury last April and I moved out. I finished my graduate studies in 21, moved out to Salt Lake for a job opportunity and some family out here and also I'm avid rock climber, um, making a lot more money on the West coast than I could in the East coast. And, uh, yeah, April, I had a head injury doing CrossFit of all things. And that, I mean, it, it fucked me up pretty bad. I was in and out of the ER for a week. I mean, that, that was the hardest thing I've ever dealt with my sobriety and I felt uh, it would have been a perfect reason to go back out. <laughs> I mean, I felt people, some of my friends that I think they thought I relapsed because I had so sunk in and bags in my eyes. I couldn't sleep. I was sick all the time. And I figured, well, I'll do some more group meditations. I can't really climb. I can't exercise. I can't go to concerts. My head. So I, I was at some metaphysical crystal shop. There's a bunch of them in Salt Lake as culture is pretty popular here. And you know, I was already loving the native flute. And I said, Hey, does anyone here play the flute? <laughs> and they said, Hey, there's a guy, a uh, shaman who comes here, who leads a shamanic meditation. He's the flute guy. And I, this was last I think April. And I, I walked in, I was a little nervous. So I was like, shamanism. I don't, I don't know anything about shamanism. So, you know, I've studied Eastern psychology and he had all these flutes and these drums and these crystals and he was spraying this perfume. I was like, what the fuck is going on here? <laughs> and of course they were talking, they were talking about plant medicines and my, my judgment my programming is like these fuckers are just doing drugs thinking they're spiritual you know but as soon as i heard the music as soon as i heard the music something changed and i was like something is happening here and i went up to him i've studied 
I study music professionally. My father is a jazz musician, so is my grandfather. I know music. I know music theory. I know composition. And I went up to him. I was like, dude, what were you playing? Like, it didn't. He's like, he's like, they were the songs of the plant spirits. He's like, it, it was. It wasn't me. I opened a portal. <laughs> I was like, hell yeah, this fucking guy. <laughs> hell opened yeah, a portal. And I was just like. <laughs> I was like, all right, bro. You know, and I was so judgmental because I was just, it, it didn't fit my paradigm. Right. But I, I had to go again and I kept going and I kept going and they were like, Hey, you should come to a ceremony. And I'm like, no, thanks. You know, they're like, we're just, we're just doing cacao tea and tobacco. They're like, and I was like, I can't do that. You know, it's a drug. <laughs> um, but the music pulled me back and then I eventually, you know, dabbled and I, I went, I've been to multiple ceremonies of various, various plant medicines. And I remember there was one where I was very afraid it was going to be a drug and I was very afraid it was going to be a psychedelic and the fear was just immense. And I was like, was I willing to risk my sobriety over it? You know, and it, something called me, it called me just like the self-realization fellowship called me, just like the flute called me, you know, when you're being called and I, you know, I, I dabbled and I had some experiences and I, I realized that, uh, these compounds when used in a ceremonial setting are not drugs. They're not hallucinogens. Yeah. Shaman said, you will not have a psychedelic experience. And if you're, if that's your seeking, you'll be shit out of luck. And and like you talked about how some, even like narcotic drugs or medicines, now they become poisons to us. These, a lot of these plant medicines, if you don't diet properly, if you don't have the right intentions, they actually are poisons and they won't work. Yeah. Um, and then somewhat of a rebirthing process through that. Um, you know, I remember in a, in a meditation, I asked myself, what was my deepest fear? And the voice said, being born, you know, mm-hmm. I really got in touch with my higher self. And it said, I didn't really want to come to earth. And my greatest fear was being born. Your body stores all your tra- trauma, but your ego forgets it. And I had to relive the birthing experience. Um, I had to relive the first trauma. It was incredibly, <laughs> incredibly painful. You know, and uh, and I had this awakening where I know I'm this is a bit tangential, but this is please, kind of my please. I had this, this is what awakening we do. Where in my mind, in my ego, but also in my spirit, I relinquished my parents of their duty. Mm. You know, I, 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 I now I am my own father. I am my own mother. I gave birth to myself in one of these ceremonies. Yeah, and that may sound out there, but this is truth as the highest truth as I comprehend it. Cause I always had so much resentment towards my parents and I was able to let, I was able to let them go of this, whatever I expected from them. Um, I'm very new to this path. I know very little, um, but I, I see the benefit and it. it's, it's shattered all the paradigms I had, particularly about recovery and what a mind altering substance is, but also the music, you know, hearing the shaman play the flute and play the drum and sing. And it's just, it can't be denied. Thank you for sharing that experience. That's great. Do you want to get in on the conversation? I've teamed up with Numenauts to offer you the opportunity to do just that. For only a dollar a month, you'll get access to Numenauts.club, a Mastodon server for animists and artists that brings together the Nightbird Radio and Soapbox podcast communities. Just click the link that I've provided in the show description to get started. Now let's get back to the conversation. That reminds me of 
um, just the idea of of sovereignty being the one that's responsible for your own life. That's important in like Western occultism as well, like standing in the place of in the in that place of power. That's really cool. Yeah, I mean, one of the messages I often receive in my meditations is step into your power. Yeah. As power, as freedom from the limiting beliefs and thought patterns, which never really came from me. It came from family and from abusers and from society. You know, stepping your power, stepping away from that and realizing like how strong, like the power of the unconscious mind when tapped into that collective unconscious, the universal ideas. Uh, how even my patients I work with the the rehab, I can see the predicament they're in, and I, I can have empathy and kindness for it. But I see a lot of them. I wonder. I ask them when they're in my office. I said, "Are you ready to wake up?" And no one ever just says, "Yeah." They're like, they kind of <laughs> think about what it. What the fuck do you like, mean, dude? <laughs> but now, in a sense, I think they know exactly what I mean. Yeah, you think? You know, I think they know exactly what I mean, and. I think that's probably where some of the fear comes from. Yeah. You know, most of them are, you know, most of them are, and that's fine. I can see the predicament. It can be frustrating. Yeah. Now I have to look at myself. Well, what am I seeing? In what ways am I still imprisoned? You know, am I just looking, am I just projecting my own? So just counter transference in the psychodynamic sense. But, you know, lately I've been doing sound therapy at work where it's, it's a blend of, teaching mindfulness, grounding, cognitive behavioral mindfulness, a sound bath, I have the bowls, the flutes, guitars, chimes, drums, and also the shamanic, this primal element of a purge. You know, the shamanic drum playing over their body. I see people having these reactions and I've been working on my craft, you know, and I was, I was given this message in one of these ceremonies that I, I have the medicine that you must share it now. And I, I think about this, this medicine, whether it's the therapy or whether it's a, pharmacology or it's just it's AA or some support group you know that taking these medicines and I've seen people during my sound therapy have these profound experiences you know talking to dead loved ones seeing things going on psychedelic journeys and um, you know some people I'll see them purging and they'll kind of playing the drum and it's just amazing to be able to see it uh, in, in real time you know and to be able to bring it to the clinical environment and, and you know the patients the last two agents I worked at they're like when are we doing it again? Like, when are we doing another sound therapy session? It's like, there's following me around like, when are we doing it? You know, That's it's awesome. so powerful. It's so, it's so fucking powerful. That's really cool to hear. Um, yeah, it's interesting. You mentioned talking to dead relatives. I think, you know, when you're talking about this trauma that we're handed, I think, um, a lot of it is ancestral. Um, I'm big on the ancestral healing, um, work, both, um, there's a book called Ancestral Medicine by Daniel Four, Doctor Daniel Four. That's um that's really good, um, and that's like a lot of visionary practice, kind of like taking these journeys um in trance and going to like you basically contact uh, an ancestral guide from each of your four lines, and like work with them in healing some of this trauma, and it's it's fantastic. Um, mm-hmm. And then I also do ancestral healing in a, a ritual like framework as well. And some, you know, 
I, what I've come to understand through some of these practices, and they're difficult to describe, and what I've learned from these practices is that a lot of this stuff has been handed down and that my journey in healing it is also um, it's healing those lines going back. So it's not just, and it, and it's, and in, in that sense, it's also healing my descendants going forward. And um, so it really puts a new perspective on the responsibility of my incarnation. Um, you know, whether you think that we live multiple lives or not, it is uh, pretty unassailable. I think that I'm made of the people that came before me. I'm made of them. They passed, they gave me all of this. Uh, they are the blood in my veins. They are the breath that I breathe. That breath was passed down. Um, and it, they're in the particulate that we breathe physically. You know what I mean? Like everyone returns to that uh, stratum. And so that's been incredibly, um, incredibly powerful for me. Uh, I did an episode sort of talking about this um, a little ways back, but um um yeah when i when i didn't always make the connection between that and and a lot of the um aspects of my recovery but when i started to think about it in that sense it made a lot of sense um you know why is it that when i look at sometimes you see a billboard for you know whatever it is for some booze or something and then i have that like pull towards it like that draw towards it it's a really um useful framework to view that as for lack of a better word a ghost <laughs> you know yes yes i remember feeling still do sometimes i felt haunted sure. yeah in a paranormal sense i just felt haunted by some shadow and i think it was some part of my subconscious that i failed to integrate yeah. What what pain demands to be felt, and it will be felt in one way or another. Repressed pain will bleed out. For me, it bleeded out as mental health disorders and addiction. You know, I just remember this sense of being haunted. And I, I said this, this sounds odd, but I think you'll understand it. I remember at an early age, I could hear the world screaming. Mm. Like I, and it doesn't mean like a literal, like I don't, I've never, I've never actually experienced psychosis and I've done a lot of drugs and mind altering substances. And at one point I was even strung out psychedelics and I still never really experienced, um, psychosis. I'm not a very visual person, but it was this sense that I could hear the world's pain. And in the back of my mind, there's like, ah, just like this, like heavy metal scream coming from the earth of just masses of people who are suffering and I could just hear it and sense it and, I've been told I'm an empath and I had someone look at my birth chart and say, you're a reflector, which is a very rare, only 1% of the population that you essentially have no emotional boundaries and that you just absorb other people's. And I was like, yeah, that makes sense. You know, I, that it can account for a lot of the things I feel. I don't know much about astrology and it's, it doesn't really speak to me that much, but I've had some people look at my chart and uh, say, yes, that makes sense. Um, <laughs> that that's the way you felt. So um, and to, to integrate that into my personality just as a kid, it was just pain. It was suffering, you know, no wonder I wanted to die. You know, who, who wouldn't, who could handle that at an early age and drugs being a medication for that, you know, quieting, yeah, um, quieting that, 
those voices. And I think that's partially too, like there's something there with, um, and you know, I cannot speak for other cultures, but I can say, um, there's an author that I really enjoy. His name is Gordon White. And he would say something like something like, um, there's something like the path of the shaman in the path of addiction. Right. Um, like, because we go to the world of death and we come back and if we make it back, we now have a gift yeah. and, a, and a medicine like you were talking about to heal the people with um, something that I can bring back from the land of death to um, in order to now give something to society and give something to the people in my life as opposed to take. And um, I think, that's one of the frameworks that we lack in our society that actually is pretty harmful. Um, we don't have a system of initiation. And I think that if we don't initiate, then the world initiates. And in my experience, that was very dangerous, <laughs> but there are like, yes. there are, um, you can do it in a framework that kind of mitigates a little bit of that. Um, it's still dangerous. I think that, that that's the nature of the beast, right? But um, maybe not quite so destructive. Yes, most ancient cultures have some initiation rites where a child, you know, in, in older cultures, there's no concept of adolescence. That's a very American. It's you're, you're a child and then you're a man or a woman. And then you go through, you know, some trial of strength or feet or have a kinsier or something. Some, some cultural thing where you're officially a woman or an adult. Often they'll change your name. There'll be a period where you're not allowed to talk to your mother. Or you just hang with the elder men, you know, in, in Western society, we have this idea of adolescence that just kind of lingers on. When does it end? Is it 22? Is it 21? Is it 23? And then we have no true initiation. At least I didn't. So I initiated myself through drugs and drug culture. That was my initiation. A lot of people do football, fraternity, sports, music, drugs, gang culture, crime culture. That's a big one. For me, it was, it was music, the music, heavy metal culture and drugs was my initiation. I remember the first dope house I was invited to, and the first drug dealer, he's like, come hang out. And the first time I, I got these connects and I, I was initiated and they said, you know, they didn't say it directly, but the message was, you're one of us now. You're one of us now. Mm. And that, what did that make you feel like? It was empowering. Uh, it was empowering. It made me feel like a rock star. It was very Hollywood, as I say. It was, yeah. And it was just counterculture. I've been counterculture since day one. Yeah. It was just a fuck you to the world, to the mainstream. And it was just, it was my rebellion. But my rebellion became its own prison. And counterculture movements are actually, you know, it's just one end of the spectrum. You said yeah. you're like hyper liberal <laughs> and you're hyper conservative. And they're one and the same. And they're they both one, equally full one of One is hate. required for the other one to exist. Yeah. Yeah, they're both full of hate. <laughs> You know, the conservative guides their hatred through religious and, you know, real America and the rights, the, the rights, of the constitution and the liberal hides their hatred through social justice. Right. And it's just like, what the fuck? I, yeah. I call it the two man grift. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. a joke. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a trap, I think too, you know, and, um, you know, it was necessary for me to fall into that for a little bit too, actually. Um, but there's hard, there's not a lot to me that's more liberating than being able to step outside of that 
that particular one because it was just pretty pervasive to me and, and actually is way more pervasive now than I think it has been in a long time, at least from what I can remember. Yes. And, you know, my undergraduate's in philosophy. I got really into Nietzsche and German existentialism, obviously. I was a depressed, you know, gothic heroin addict. So it's perfect. Yeah, but, dope. you know, Nietzsche was... It's hard to say what he was because he was there. He, he was kind of fucked up and flawed in a way. There's a lot of hearsay about him that's not accurate, but you know he prophesized a lot, and it, what he said was a lot of it was rooted deeply in Eastern psychology and concepts of Buddhism. He predicted that when the religious mythos of Western society died, which it did, he said, you know, Darwin producing Origin of the Species and the Scientific Revolution would destroy the Christian mythos. Because now we we could explain the world without God. Before the scientific revolution, the Renaissance and Darwin, no one had ever really given uh, a theodicy that didn't include God. And we had one that was logical and valid and made sense and could account for most of what we saw with the naked eye. Um, Nietzsche said, when when this mythos dies, that um, political radicalism would take its place. That political ideology would become the new Mm -hmm. church. Yeah. He predicted the rise of the Reich. He said it would become the new throne and it would create a world war. And it did. <laughs> yeah. And even our culture too, we, you know, the church used to run everything. And now it's, you know, we have this, this, the political mind washing controls everyone and everything. Everything's religion. Even academia yeah. is completely politically charged. It's the ultimate separation. Yeah. And I think that um, it's going to lead us back to or maybe maybe a synthesis you know something that hasn't been before um i'm optimistic about it you know as much as um i can bemoan it um i think that we're going through uh, a sort of trial i think that in the same way that um disease can be the expression of the body purging something or um burning through something or even integrating something. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that our current woes are the expression of something that is leaving this world, but it has to be expressed in order to leave this world, if that makes any sense. Yeah. You know, as Ram Das always said, it's a, suffering is a good indication that you're either hanging on to an old model for how it is or that one of those models is dying. Yeah, I like that a lot. That's good stuff. And that there's actually grace in it. It's hard to see when you're in it. And I just want to say, I definitely want to start playing some flute soon, but the gratitude I have for the luxuries I've had, you know, that I, I grew up in a middle-class environment, my base needs are met, but also that I have a healthy body. And I see that how much work I'm able to do because of these gifts that I just was apparently given. I didn't choose any of them. And the gratitude that I, I have a healthy body and that I have these resources um, that I that had some advantages growing up and that, you know, to these days, I use that to carry carry this message. <laughs> I use it to share the medicine, you know, and I've, I've worked in all environments and in, in the west side of Atlanta. And now, now I'm currently working with very wealthy clientele. So I've worked with clients who are living in a campground. Now I'm working with clients whose families own private jets, you know. <laughs> Um, it looks different. It's dressed up different, but the internal issues, I assure you are the same, regardless of ethnicity, culture, class, creed, or race. 
you know, the internal predicament is often similar. Nice. Dude, let's hear some flutes. Definitely. I got a few. I'll just probably kind of cycle out through a few. Yeah. So do you have any, like, just do your thing, man. I mean, but do you want to give each one a little bit of a, like, yeah. Intro? Yeah. This, yeah. This one, um, I found this. Uh, I do love, so social media has its downside, but technology and social media, when used properly, is a beautiful tool for connection. I use my social media for music, spirituality, science, and I've met amazing people. I met this guy, um, Indonesian dude. He makes flutes out of tree branches. He just, in Bali, Indonesia, this is a mangrove branch. I think he found near the beach and he they split it in half, hollow it out, glue it back together. And this, this one's in kind of low B flat as a bass tune, but you can really feel the plant spirits and particularly these, these tree branch flutes. Probably hard to see. It has beautiful kind of colorations, natural it's kind of face in it. Um, got this one a couple months ago. It's become one of my favorite for meditation. Very soothing flute. So I'll just uh, improvise a little bit on it. Um, you ready? Yeah, ready. Yeah. Not Drew. I don't know what it is. I just, there's sometimes I play and I come back. I'm like, <clears throat> it's like falling back into my body. So it's a very. That's great. Yeah. I love experience. it. It's like being, um, for lack of a better word, it's like you're being possessed by the tree. <laughs> like, yeah. like, yeah. it's like, it's coming through you. I, I don't know. Cause when I, I was closing my eyes and listening to that and I was like, oh yeah, this is the flute. Like this is, I mean, it just like sounds silly, but like you know what I mean. <laughs> like, um, so this one, this is a guy in Salem, Oregon. Met him on Etsy. 
And, uh, you know, getting a flute is very personal. I always call, I call him if I can't meet him in person. I say, hey, this is what I want. He made this custom for me. It's made of eastern cedar wood, aromatic cedar. It has a really nice piney smell. Uh, he made uh, the, the blocks and tip out of maple burl. You can kind of see the coloration on it. Red jasper mm-hmm. stone. He put It's in the low C, so he put the root chakra kind of, which is, you know, the chakra system eludes me. I don't think anyone, any Westerner really understands it. Um, so, <laughs> but I think you're not alone there. <laughs> yeah. And I, I've, I've actually, the more time I get and the more I study Eastern psychology, the less I talk about chakras. Cause it's just like, we just talk about it. Like Westerners talk about it as if they know what the hell it is. Yeah. And I think um, that like, they're all over us too. Like, like we're covered in them. <laughs> yeah. I don't, but I don't really know, know <laughs> yeah. but, but, um, it, but this is a grounding flute. So I got the root chakra logo C, you know, typically the key of C colors, red, earthy flesh tones typically associated with that. So it's a nine hole drone flute it has two chambers. So I can actually, I can change the key. There's three different modes and I can do some really interesting stuff with it. So I'll kind of, kind of hard to see. I'll try to back up the computer a little bit. Yeah. Go ahead and play this one. That sounded like more than one flute. Yeah, like I said, there's two <laughs> there's two holes, so I can yeah, play one line. Yeah, that's so cool. And I can pop these out to change the tuning. 
I have a low C, low C minor. I could pop this out, do E flat major, and then pop that out. I could access F minor and F major and um, F Phrygian. So, and I can also take all of them off and um, play as a fifth drone. So that's kind of flute talk, but yeah, this is a lot going on in this one. Very cool. Yeah. I like it. Um, I have the more Middle Eastern sounding flute. It's one of my favorite. This is the Hijaz scale. It's kind of a Middle Eastern mode. I think it's really the Phrygian scale with the raised third, or um, I think the harmonic mitre played from the fifth to the fifth, kind of in Western music theory. But this one was made by Singing Tree Flutes, Miguel Medina. He's a... Uh, I think he moved to Washington. He was in Portland, Oregon, I believe, but a lot of these guys in the Pacific Northwest. But this one, I love playing this with kind of a, like a, a harmonium or a tempura drone. It sounds good with a guitar, too. This one has kind of a snake charmer vibe, high-pitched, uh, high B. Fantastic. Yeah, that's a fun one. That's a fun one. Um, guess I have a few others, but one more I think I really want to show you. Cool. So the thing about the native style flute, it's actually, of course, it's not actually native. It was made by, I think, an American guy in the 70s. It's kind of made popular by a, an actual Native American, Carlos Arnakai who made an album, I believe in 1984, which really showcased what they call the native American style flute. But the what, what we hear as the native style flute is actually tuned to a shakuhachi. It's more of a Japanese, that minor pentatonic sound. It's really more of a Japanese sound. A lot of traditional native songs from what I've heard actually have a very, they're often in major, like major pentatonic modes. They sound a little bit different. Um, so obviously there's some interesting history and culture behind that. Now this type of flute, this is called a harmony drone or a Mayan drone flute. Um, apparently that's the kind of Mayans and Mesoamericans had flutes like this, but they were made out of clay. They weren't made out of wood, but it's interesting, um, you know, how, how they tune them. I guess I, I've heard that they were tuned to 432 Hertz and a lot of them were perfect pitch. Now how they did that, I don't know. Ethnomusicologists probably know more about that, but how they created these, things just like how they create found these medicines you know it's well what did they say they how did they say they did it the spirits and yeah that's yeah and that's um that's the first thread i'm gonna pull on you know 
yeah, the divine intuition from the spirits. So this one has two chambers, two new perfect fifth. This is kind of fancy. This is also the guy singing tree flutes. This one is not cheap. This is less of a meditative flute. I feel like this is more of a performance piece, but this is what I call my rock star flute. This is definitely a showstopper. Awesome, man. Yeah, it's my fancy. Thank you for playing those, man. Thank you. My fancy flute. Yeah, you're welcome. So if that's inspired any of the listeners to to maybe check that path out, where would you send a beginner that someone that's wanting to get into flutes? Where would you what would you recommend? Um Butch Hall, Texan flutes. He's a dude, he's made flutes for I think thirty over thirty years. That was one of my first ones. I got it, I was driving out here to Utah and actually got it in Sedona. It's about $150 for a concert series flute. And it plays just as nice as some $500 flutes I've held. So yeah, Butch Hall, he has a website. He doesn't have an Etsy. I don't think a social media, but there's a concert series, you know, the key of G or F I'd say the key of G would be a good one. It's kind of right in the middle. Um, you know, the, the larger the flute, the deeper the tone, the smaller the flute, the higher the pitch G is kind of right in the middle. It's a good middle tone. That's what I would suggest. It's not. It's a pretty easy instrument that you just blow into it and it makes a sound. Now the subtle nuances and the tonal manipulation that can get kind of complicated in the style, um, but it's. I don't know. It's just a joy. It's a joy to play. It's a joy to listen to. And I couldn't imagine my life without the flutes. So I, I yeah, I can hear it in your music, man. I can no, hear I just, it. I always have them with me. <laughs> They're a part of me. Awesome, man. Um, do you real quick want to tell people where they can find you? Uh, and what you've got going on, just anything you want to kind of give a little. Yeah. Yeah. So far. So it, the path is kind of new to me, you know, what I do in the professional sphere because of anonymity, working with a lot of people associated with 12 step fellowships and the treatment industry, I can't really post what I'm doing professionally online. 
Um, and I, I work right now working with a lot of high profile clientele. So obviously that, that is, that'll stay in the workspace in the agency. But um, I have an Instagram. It's at Drew Mystic Flutes. I've just had it for a couple months. I'm posting a lot of the music in the Salt Lake area. I'll be hosting some sound baths pretty soon here. I do one for a 12-step community. Obviously, I can't promote that publicly to protect uh, the, the anonymity and also the traditions. Um, but uh, I should be having a few sound baths. I've done one at uh, the front, the climbing gym, yoga studio. And I have two more in the works. Hopefully in December, I'll be doing some public sound baths. And I'll post that but yeah, at Drew Mystic Flutes for all the flute news. And uh, I always post some music. I just try to improvise every night. At least post something in my story to send some good vibes out there. Awesome, man. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I had a great time talking to you, man. It's a really good conversation. It's going to have me thinking. Yeah, a lot to think about. No, thank you. And it's just cool to talk about. It's actually my first podcast I've been on. So I've always had a dream. I was talking to my friend. I was like, I've always wanted to be on a podcast. It's finally oh, happening. nice. So I was really excited. <laughs> Glad we could do that for you. Do you experience weird shit? Do your parents not like to tell their friends about what you do in the woods? Do you make more friends in a graveyard than you do at a party populated by living humans? Do you have interactions with beings that are not strictly considered human? Do other people look at you like you're crazy when you mention talking to trees in casual conversation? If you fist pumped or even just answered yes to any of these questions, you may be a nightbird. So let's sing together. If you'd like to come on the show and flap your gums with me, share your stories, or just talk about the malleable nature of reality for a while, then send me an email at tim at nightbirdpodcast.com. That's tim at nightbirdpodcast.com. I'd love to have you on the show. But until then, I gotta fly. But before I go, let me say this. Remember, you are never alone. I believe you.